The uh, concept of a medical missionary is one that I think we all have a grasp of, but I'm not sure that it's really uh, clear in all our minds, and maybe there's some room to grow. I, when I was early in my career, I had someone tell me that unless I was working in a lifestyle center, I was not following the Lord's plan. And, and I think that was a, a, uh, an incorrect, if you will, uh, uh, statement. And as I've kind of gone through life and matured, I have uh, come to see that health ministry, uh, helping people, is really reflecting of God's character. And I am privileged as a physician to be able to have to make a living doing something that really is helping people or reflecting God's character. Uh, <clears throat> my family has been involved with Seventh-day Adventist institutions, health institutions, for a long time. My grandfather had the opportunity of building two of them. He was the administrator. He uh, built Castle Memorial in Hawaii and the other one I don't remember. He managed several hospitals. Uh, my father went as a missionary to Youngberg Memorial Hospital in Singapore, and I grew, did some growing up there, and that was, of course, the mission hospital, and, of course, uh, medical school, and since then has left me first in Guam Clinic, then uh, back to Loma Linda University, up to Sonora, and then at the Lifestyle Center of America, and now finally at Florida Hospital. It's been an interesting journey. Our uh, focus today has to do with spiritual mission and medical institutions. It's uh, sometimes understood uh, a bit affrontive and maybe uh, even uh, inappropriate to speak to people about spiritual things. The uh, science is beginning to help us with these things. Maybe you've heard the term whole person care. It's becoming more and more popular. Family medicine has had this as a part of their uh, kind of universe for quite some time. So we talk about whole person care. That includes the spiritual, does it not? Uh, some interesting, uh, in reviewing for this uh, particular uh, talk, I, I uh, found an interesting article that s simply reviewed the number of articles in the scientific literature on spirituality and health. And they, they see a significant increase through time. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of interesting. Re religion and spirituality in biomedical journals, the number of those articles is increasing rather quickly. We see churches addressing uh, health issues. We've, those of us here in the room know that the uh, Seventh-day Adventists have done that for 100 years plus, but other churches are now finding this an important part of their ministry. And so uh, that's another overlap, if you will, between spiritual care and uh, health care. And I've mentioned here the American Academy of Family Physicians uh, and, and their encouragement. <clears throat> now the strongest, uh, this, is, this is fascinating to me as I was researching this, the strongest correlation uh, from kind of this spiritual uh, arena is uh, decreased risk of dying from church attendance. And church attendance it seems to be fairly uh, strong. Weekly attendance at religious services decreased the risk of dying. Uh, it, it was 5,000 patients over 28 years. The relative risk was a 36% reduction, and you can see the uh, confidence interval intervals there. When they adjusted for social support and health practices, it was still uh, a, uh, quite a significant drop of around 25%. And if you looked at women, it was even uh, stronger there at uh, 34%. Uh, reduction, no, I get this right, decreased risk of dying, a, a decreased risk in dying. And uh, several studies have, have looked at this, just simply going to church. So I suppose that makes it a legitimate part of our uh, history, doesn't it? Do you go to a church or services on a regular basis? Simply going to church makes a difference. A uh, survey of 20,000 Americans, by the way, uh, in this area of religiousness and 
uh, health, there are no double-blind, randomized, controlled studies. Is that obvious? I mean, those are impossible to do, right? So we, we have to deal more with observations to understand this. Uh, this is a religious involvement in the U.S. adult mortality, reported in 1999, so it's not new. But a survey of 20,000 Americans, huge, uh, seven years longer with regular church attendance. And in blacks, 14 years longer. So church is making a significant difference. Now, in those that never attend church, the risk of dying was increased 50%. So there, there's, there is a spiritual dimension that affects health. And again, this uh, regular uh, worship is the strongest one. Older worshipers, 557 adults over six years, uh, reduced risk of 78%, again, an odds ratio, compared to non-attendance. And it seemed to be, at least a significant portion of it, those who went to church on a regular basis had decreased serum interleukin-6 levels. So looking for kind of biological mechanisms, if you will, and not uh, necessarily knowing for sure, but at least getting some clues. Religious involvement helps. And this is kind of a, a review of the literature uh, done by Koenig and some others. Uh, mental health and substance abuse seems to be better in people who have uh, religious involvement. Social health and quality of life, positive health behaviors, that is not smoking, not uh, drinking too much. More disease screening in people who uh, go to church on a regular basis or are involved religiously. Continuity of care is better, regular follow-up. There are fewer surgical complications than go those who go to church regularly. And use of health services. And I, as I understand, this is a, a regular uh, use of health services. Uh, improved endocrine and immune function, uh, lower blood pressure, less coronary artery obstruction, less carotid atherosclerosis, improved survival rates, and increase in positive human traits, forgiveness, gratitude, meaning, purpose, optimism, hope, altruism. All of these associated with. So we have permission to talk to our patients about spiritual things. Now, religious beliefs influence a lot of things that we do in medicine. Uh, chemotherapy, decisions about what are we going to do about this cancer treatment, a person's spiritual perspective comes into play with that. So that as a, a legitimate place to bring it up. Do not resuscitate status. How your patient feels about end of life issues ends up being really important. A lot of spirituality in that. Advanced directives kind of in the same realm and then really end-of-life care. All of these have spiritual, religious influences. Now, religion is not good for everything. Religion tends to worsen, and this, these are from the literature. There are many fewer of these than there is the benefits. But uh, those who are religious have a worse problem with obsessive-compulsive disorder if they live in Italy, okay? <laughs> Uh, that, was, that was an interesting group. Risk of breast cancer among women raised in religious homes in California tended to be a little higher. Potluck? Okay. <laughs> oh, you think it's... Okay, I, I've got it. <clears throat> Control of diabetes is worse in those who go to church regularly. Muslims in lead, that's in the United Kingdom. And then survival rates after hospital discharge in patients without uh, religious struggles, uh, or no, with religious struggles in North Carolina. And you know, apparently some sort of religious struggle in the life can make things a little bit worse. So again, religion is a part of our health. So when we come to the hospital setting, uh, to the uh, even outpatient clinical setting, but in this kind of organizational structure, how do we go about addressing the spiritual dimensions of, of uh, folks? Um, my interest has been in lifestyle medicine. How do I help people w change their lifestyle in order to improve their health? I appreciated uh, Tim 
your discussion this morning about how the healing that comes from lifestyle medicine is a picture, if you will, of uh, the salvation process. It allows, I like to say, it allows people to experience salvation without religious baggage. <laughs> okay? So that's kind of the way I like to put it. And so lifestyle medicine has been an important part of that focus, at least in my practice. And I've discovered how to do it on an individual basis. That is, one-on-one -on -one in the office. I remember the first fellow that uh, had, came in with diabetes and hypertension, the metabolic syndrome. And as I talked to him about this, this was years ago in the, in the 80s, I was working in the Guam Clinic. An Italian businessman came in with this metabolic syndrome. We didn't even have that name for it in those days. We just thought they were four different diseases. He had them all. I asked him to do the lifestyle changes, and he made the lifestyle changes. And a year later, things were really completely normalized. Uh, that was incredible to me, and I, it kind of changed the course or energy or focus of my life towards the lifestyle intervention. Yes, it's nice to be able to help people. Now, what's my attitude towards people who don't want to make those changes? Well, what's God's attitude towards people who don't want to make changes? Well, you continue to love them. And the truth is, I've got some medications that may be able to help them live a little longer if they don't want to make those changes, but at least I've given them the choice. So I call my <laughs> pills grace, <laughs> but I say the best thing to do is to change your lifestyle. So that's been helpful. The Guam Clinic introduced me to the one-on-one. -on -one. I did some group lecturing and type, those, that type of a thing. Then went to Loma Linda University, where I got some more information, if you will, and experience with uh, lifestyle changes. Then Dina and I moved to uh, Northern California, where she was bored as a nurse practitioner with nothing to do in a mountain home, so she took up uh, the CHIP program, Coronary Health Improvement Project. And I had a fascinating experience with this uh, interaction in a community setting with a whole group of people, and the group dynamic brought a whole new energy to lifestyle change. From there to Lifestyle Center of America, where people were paying money to come a long distance. And when they landed, most of them, if I said jump, they would say how high on the way up. We had a, a high compliance rate, if you will, and saw miraculous things happening. Each, uh, in each circumstance, there is a spiritual dimension. That ended up being, at least for us, a financial challenge. And it was hard to make that, that way of doing things work. And when the opportunity came for me to uh, go to Florida Hospital and, and uh, work in Florida Hospital, uh, it began to make sense to me as a place where there could be spirituality and lifestyle kind of all meshed up together. Why do people make changes in their lifestyle? Sometimes it's simply information. They didn't know when they hear they'll do it. Some people, and I would say most people, it takes a crisis. Our marketing people at Lifestyle Center of America tried to find people in crisis on the phone and talk them into it. They didn't have a lot of credibility. You know, they had a glossy. They had what someone had said by word of mouth, but to actually change people's uh, understanding was a bit of a challenge. At an acute care hospital, that's where crises happen. They're all concentrated. So it makes sense that that's when people's lives are best touched for this example, if you will, of the healing process, of the salvation process uh, within the mode of healing. It's a wonderful place. And Florida Hospital, had, when I went to interview, uh, I found very focused and interested in addressing the spiritual part of people, number one, and, uh, and number two, in having the whole Seventh-day Adventist health ministry to the forefront. Now, that's a big challenge when you run a hospital that is huge. As I understand, it's the largest admitting hospital in the United States, uh, certainly the largest Medicare biller in the United States. 
I was uh, lamenting to uh, one of the administrators uh, about you know, the lack of Adventists working in this institution. And I was told we work hard to get Adventists. Last year, we hired all we could get. Of course, we want competent people, right? All the, all the competent we could get, we hired, and I don't know what they said, 250, something like that. And our percentage of Adventists fell behind, okay? I mean, it's a big job. And so the ad administration has worked hard to try to keep Seventh-day Adventists up front, health ministry, if you will. And I really like their byline, extending the healing ministry of Christ. My plan is to share for the rest of our time, I think we've done a little bit with the science, uh, is to share with you what I see happening at Florida Hospital, number one, and the benefits that I see coming from that. It's not all perfect. It never is. It's always a work in process. And then have some interaction with you over things that have worked in your hospital. Some of you may work in non-Adventist hospitals. Some of you work in Adventist hospitals or are connected with them. And things are always a little bit different. But I think we may have some things to share with each other of things that we've tried and have worked or things that we've noted that have been helpful in promoting, if you will, this interaction with the spirituality of our patients to bring the total healing that really needs to happen. Well, let me share with you what I have and uh, let's uh, go from there. Florida Hospital has a chaplaincy program. Now, chaplains are the ones who are supposed to talk about spiritual things, correct? One of the things that's uh, nice in our uh, particular program, I, I work in a residency uh, we're one of the large family medicine residencies in the country. We have a chaplain assigned to our residency. She comes and spends time in the office. If the resident has a patient with a spiritual issue, she will talk to the patient uh, herself or go in with the resident and interact over the, the spiritual issues. A great, uh, let's say, uh, support, if you will, of this whole uh, spiritual uh, connection. Uh, there is a chaplaincy training program as well, and not everyone who comes to the chaplaincy program is a, even a Christian. I know several years ago they had a Muslim who came through. I heard him speak. He's quite excited about being a certified chaplain as a Muslim and, and is included. Of course, chaplains uh, are taught how to meet uh, a patient's spiritual need without... Uh, applying, how would one say this, uh, denominational screws. And I think that's very consistent with the recommendations given to us. There's another a program called Spiritual Ambassadors, uh, where employees who come to help extend the healing ministry of Christ, no matter what faith they're from, meet together with a team which trains them to be spiritual ambassadors. There's a little pin that they wear that says uh, that they are spiritual ambassadors. And they're taught how to appropriately pray with patients. So that's for really any of the staff. And I, I just think that that is a, an excellent uh, move as well. Then there's a whole concept of parish nursing. And Florida Hospital has been forward in reaching out into the community and interacting with uh, churches. I am not as aware of the details on this, but I have uh, interacted with the lady who runs this. And I know it's an active program involving uh, spiritual uh, with the uh, uh, church. Uh, you know, the Florida Hospital has a Department of Health Care and Spirituality. And there's a physician that's the head of this uh, committee. Dr. Uh, Guarneri is not a Seventh-day Adventist, but he's a very committed Christian. He's an OBGYN specialist. His office is just down uh, half a block from mine. And uh, I appreciate, uh, actually this weekend, there is a conference, physicians who are interested in getting together and talk about how to interact with the spiritual, with patients over spiritual things. So these are things encouraged uh, by the hospital administration and uh, the, uh, of course, physicians are involved with that. Uh, in the residency, we have whole person care rounds where we talk about uh, these types of things. Of course, that's an educational uh, setting. Storytelling. 
Uh, to me, storytelling is extremely important. I mentioned that in my uh, short remark this morning, how storytelling tends to provide hope to people and I think is much more powerful at uh, changing behaviors. There's a lot of storytelling that goes on uh, purposefully at Florida Hospital. It's, uh, it's really sent out uh, centrally in many of the different organs of communication. Uh, there's a story that comes out most every week from uh, the president, uh, Lars Holman, and other kind of tools where stories are tell, told of people who are involved in healing and dealing with the spiritual dimension. So these are things that help uh, create an environment where we're extending the healing ministry of Christ. Now, I... Uh, uh, appreciate this concept of Healthy 100. It's Florida Hospital's uh, new kind of marketing push. Uh, Des Cummings has stepped into the back here. I think he's the guru behind this and we should, uh, he can fill us in on all the details. But the idea is this, we can help you live to a healthy 100. If you have a heart attack, we'll help you with that. If you, if you need a vascular, if you break your hip, we'll help you with that but we also want to help you with your lifestyle change. So to try to incorporate that whole business in, in such a way that it's part of the marketing to the uh, community. Des, say something about that. Um, what we've done is basically looked at the uh, question of healthcare reform and asked what does the Adventist health message really have to offer in a situation and the need to meet the needs of healthcare reform. As you look at the issue of healthcare reform, you find that basically it was producing the health, uh, medicine was producing the greatest value in America when they were extending life expectancy. Life expectancy at the beginning of the 20th century was 45 years, at the end was 78 years. When Time Magazine asked what was the greatest benefit of the 20th century, Gary Brewer, Nobel Prize economist, said it was the extension of life from, for the average American took them to 78 years. That life extension began to plateau in 2000, and the projections from a number of sources have been that it's going to go down because of obesity and activity and so forth. We said there has to be a new vision. There has to be a new vision of health in America. And we looked at what was happening in Adventist health, what we could contribute. We found that Adventists can help you live 11 years longer to the age 89. Well, we're 78 years life expectancy at the end of 2000. Adventists can live to 89. That's halfway to 100. We only need another 11 years. So Adventists give you 11-year advantage, and then you have an 11-year uh, target that you say, how can we live on to a, to a healthy 100? We said what we really have in America is a value crisis. We're spending more to actually get fewer years, or we're spending more to get the same number of years. We're plateauing that. That's what creates a value crisis, and that's why what drives healthcare reform. If we were skyrocketing on life expectancy, if we were skyrocketing enabled health versus disabled health, if that were taking off, we would have a different world. So we want a health span that's equal to the lifespan, and we want a lifespan that's towards a healthy hundred. So he said, what do we have to offer? We're people of eternity. We're in a world of the temporary. We can bring it's not about the future being the sweet by and by, and this is the nasty now and now. It's about how do we bring heaven's value to earth's needs, right? And the way we do that is begin to raise people's sights for a new vision. We say, imagine a healthy hundred. So we didn't offer them to say, we will guarantee you a healthy hundred. We imagine a healthy hundred because there are limitations, there are realities. And I just uh, finished a book on eight secrets of a healthy hundred, and the first person I profile in it is an Adventist young uh, man, young, not young, um, well, he's 54 years old. <laughs> but, he, but he has uh, cystic fibrosis. Expe life expectancy was 12 years old. He defied that. He was not supposed to be able to have children. They defied that. He was not, not supposed to be able to live actively in a profession. He defied that. He is a hospital administrator in one of our hospitals. John Sackett is his name, and when I asked John, if he was the oldest living American with CHF, CF. he said, CF, CF, he yeah. said I don't want to. I don't want to know. He said because that's limiting. But he said I do know this: that if I didn't live the Adventist health lifestyle, that would not be a question. That would not be a question. 
So the point is twofold. What Adventism can do to give people a healthy future is not boil down like most other ways into simply diet and exercise. Adventists can give you purpose. Purpose is the greatest thing that drives. So my first question is somebody, what makes you want to live to a healthy age? If you can't answer that, you will not have the personal motivation to make the lifestyle changes to move into the future. So that's where we start. And then we basically say, what can we do to make the future healthy hundreds? So now we have healthy hundred churches, we have healthy hundred schools, healthy hundred companies, healthy hundred communities. We could talk a lot about what we're doing with those, but uh, we won't take the time to do that. Uh, but tomorrow night, I believe I'll talk a little bit with Mark on why. We were born in health reform. Today's biggest issue is health reform. Adventists have an incredible answer. We need to step up with an incredible vision and the tools to get there. And it's not about saying we've got the answer because too many people do the same thing with scripture. They hold it up and say the answers are all in here, but they can't tell you how to get them out. We have to do the hard work of how to get those out into life. And the answer is, let's say, to reform America's breakfast in the days of John Arby Kellogg. We're probably somewhere in the knowledge of people and so forth. But he got it out with granola. He got it out with cornflakes. He reformed America's cereals. He reformed America's breakfast tables. We have to get it out products, services, careers, lifestyle. The thing that I think made America take notice of Adventist health in the first place, the leadership of a small church, 10,000 people, raised up 50 hospitals in 20 years. By the way, those hospitals, half of them were staffed, stock-owned hospitals, by the way. They sold stock. When you came to church in Adventist in those days, you were expected to give your tithe on the weekend, give your savings during the week, and work in the business. <laughs> <laughs> so you were all in, and I believe that's the biggest difference. Our faith can be for the weekend, our faith can be all, all week, and we have to be all in. If we put everything, our careers, our life, our savings, on God's ideas, that's faith. I think that that is hard work. It's hard work to take these behavior change ideas and put them into tools and products and services. When we do it, I expect we will produce wealth. And I expect that the problem in America today, as far as Adventist leadership, is not a problem of having the understandings. It's a problem of having the translation of those understandings into daily life and taking the discipline of putting those into daily life popularizing those, actually marketing those, and getting them into the marketplace. I believe that wherever you produce value, money will flow to value. And I believe the Adventist church, by the grace of God, should be the richest place in the world because it should have the best ideas on how to live, and this world needs that today more than anything else. And they need it most in the area of wanting to live, in the area of violence, and the area of loneliness. If we do not address those areas, and we just simply go for a diet and exercise. We'll produce healthier people who have been described as going fast, nowhere. Going often, going fast, going nowhere. We have a society that is too much like the Florida landscape. It's in danger of a sinkhole. The water of life does not run below the surface. And therefore, life craters at the, at the very moment that you think it should be solid. And that's what America needs. And I'm standing before people in business in all kinds of areas and give them this message. And there's an incredible opportunity of resonance with that among those people. So I'm very excited about what we're doing this. I, I, I believe in it with all my heart. I'm all in from the standpoint of that. We are also creating now with our Adventist school system, uh, Healthy 100 schools, certified to use the eight principles of creation health be able to teach those in those schools and to put that school around those principles. So if you send your child there, we'll teach them the values of how to live with purpose. We'll teach them the way of how to live, a pattern in, with health. And we'll give them the opportunity to live to a healthy hundred. Thank you, uh, Des. I appreciate that passion. As I've worked in Adventist hospitals as a, a personal physician, I have noted Oh, and maybe it's my path, I shared with you my little path, but I've noticed that uh, at uh, Seventh-day Adventist hospital administrators have a passion for the lifestyle and the mission, uh, but they often haven't known how to scratch it. I mean, the itch was there, but I sense an energy and a focus here that's making it happen. 
Most of us in the room are individual clinicians. We go from room to room and we see patient to patient. And this is good and we make a difference there. And Adventist hospitals need physicians like you and me to do that. But there's also this bigger vision. There's the marketing piece. That there, it's so big that as individuals, we don't handle it all. So I think we need to look for ways to help those who are thinking with the, the big uh, picture, the mission. Uh, Des mentioned the Creation Health Schools. I also uh, have the privilege of working with Robin Edgerton in mission development, and we're uh, beginning a project we hope to be able to roll out next year at AMEN, which will provide a uh, set of Creation Health pamphlets that express those kind of eight natural laws within the concept of creation for doctor's offices, hypertension, uh, diabetes, and those types of things, to, to bring it to that level for us to use, to fit into this larger, really nationwide, maybe worldwide marketing uh, kind of campaign to help strengthen uh, Adventist uh, health missions. And I appreciate uh, what's happening there. Uh, the Creation Health, uh, CR, some of you are acquainted with this, C-R-E-A-T-I-O-N stands for, <laughs> C is for choice. I love that it starts with that. This is like the eight natural laws. Those of you from the West Coast know it as New Start. Well, the new thing out of Florida now is uh, Creation Health. C is for choice. It's your choice. Great place to start. And the program starts with a focus on what do you do to improve your frontal lobe function right on to diet and exercise, it's right there, it's all overlapped. R is for rest, and yes, not just physical rest, but vacations and the weekly rest. E is for environment, the environment you live in and work in. Uh, A is for activity. T is for trust, and in particular, trust in God, uh, in a God who loves us and a heavenly Father. Uh, I is for Interpersonal relationships, how we get along with each other is the social piece. O is for outlook. That is, are you an optimist or pessimist? Makes a big difference. And then N, this one at the end, the nutrition one, which tends to get stuck in people's craw if you hit it too soon. But they learn the benefits uh, kind of through the program. So there's a nice creation health program that can be done in churches, in uh, offices, in all kinds of places with a set of videos and a bunch of materials. You wanted to add something else? Well, okay. all I'm just going to say is basically our pathway to get to a healthy hundred is the method of creation health. We simply go back to the creation story. The reason we use creation health and the reason this became very relevant to us is because I'll share a little bit of this tomorrow night. The Disney Corporation, when we were getting ready, when they were getting ready to choose the final company that would actually build the hospital in the new city of Dis the Disney Building Celebration, said, we were interested in what you have to offer. We like your history of health, but we want to know whether your health teachings come from scripture. We believe your healing ministry patterns after the healing ministry of Christ. Show us in scripture where your health ministry is grounded. And we basically have been studying that for some time and in looking at the many, many ideas of the Adventist Church and Ellen White and all of our Adventist health ministry history, I personally looked at that with our team and we traced it back to the creation story. So we basically said God touched the world twice. The first time was health in the creation story with his perfect plan for how humans can live life to the full. When that was lost, sin and suffering and pain came in and with disease, and God came back the second time and he touched the world with healing. So we have the two touches of God, health and healing. And if you, um, so when we came, walked them through where we got that from the creation story, the gentleman that was there representing the Disney board was a Jewish gentleman. And we started, and I started with this, with the idea of Sabbath. You know, when I used to do evangelism, I would wait two weeks in before I preached Sabbath. You know how that strategically works. You think, well, you warm them all up through this period of time and get them convinced that we all love the Lord and we're not a weird sect and so forth. And so then you then you 
given the Sabbath, and you always planned that after the Sabbath message, you'd lose a fair number of your people. I start with the Sabbath. And the first thing I start with is basically, you were made for love. And what the creation story tells you is how you're made for love. I'll share with you a little bit of that tomorrow night. How you're made for love. And the fact that you, there is the, the fact that Sabbath is a day that God took off to do only one thing, spend time with his kids, says to me, and it was a perfect day. It was the first full day of their existence. It says to me, the most important thing God can do for us is to teach us to love. That's his self-defining term for himself, his destiny for us, is the power of what produces life and meaning. So you can have life without love and you have existence. You have life with love and you have inspiration. And that's the way you live. You live, you can live with, you tell people, you know, look at the creation story. God kissed his children into life. He formed out and breathed into them the breath of life. He was inspired. You can live by inspiration. You can live by respiration. You die by expiration. Basically, in this world, you have a choice. We want you to live at the highest level of inspiration. Inspiration will do for you what helium does for a balloon. It will cause you to rise to an atmosphere all of your own. For it is God within you that produces the resilience that allows you to be able to stand under any circumstance. And circumstance is not your happenstance or your happiness. And so we talk with them through this thing because the whole idea is disease takes out of your life romance. You look at the creation story, it's all poetry patterned around words sevens and threes. First verse, seven words. Second verse, 14 words. Sabbath, three phrases of seven words each. Beautiful poetry. God breaks into song three times in the poetry. First time when he says, let us make humans. Second time when Adam meets Eve. Never forget this, gentlemen. You were made for romance. Don't let anybody tell you that macho means you don't have romance in your bones. The very first words man ever was recorded saying was a song to a woman. He's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I will cling to her. So that that is a song. And the third song is a song of Sabbath. These songs are all love in person was creation. Love in family was Adam and Eve. Love time was the Sabbath. So you have the opportunity to see love reiterated out there. What happens with disease is it takes people and dulls their romance down to where they accept existence and forget that they were made for inspiration. What you do in your office or in your, or in your medical work, the greatest gift you give is to breathe upon these people. And this is why Jesus, when he walks into the upper room and finds dead men midst of resurrection, he simply breathes on them. For it is the second breath. It is the second time he's taken the form of humans and recreated them. So the creation story is magnificently embedded in the healing ministry and life of Christ. And I talk to people from Sabbath as it is love. And people understand that. Understand that deeply. So anyway, that gives you a, a kind of approach that I found. I start with Sabbath. The two first two letters are so powerful because yes. choice is the center of garden. Freedom of choice is the most powerful thing we have as humans. Um, I can tell you my journey with an atheist right now and going through this and Evelyn sending me all the books from uh, all of the various sources to uh, on, on atheism and evolution. And, but, and I'm interacting with him about this journey. But it's first and foremost about freedom of choice. If God didn't give you choice, you don't have it. He said that what he asked me what he could believe in God. I had prayer before we were eating dinner one night, and he said, Do you believe what you're doing? I said, Yes. He said, I'm not sure I do. I said, Why? He said, Because at first I don't know if there is a God. If there is one, I don't like him because he's not loving me. Well, we just had a big earthquake. Remember that? Earthquake. And so he just had that. And he said, and we came back with a discussion on why God had to allow the truth to be told of what happens in suffering and why the biggest challenge for us is to have love with freedom. You know, to get real true love requires true choice. But 
key choice. These are not talking about, I'm not talking about choice between foods. That's important, that's a small choice. The big choice is what's your purpose, what's your passion, who's calling you. Then everything else is. Then where are you going for? You're going for rest. Rest comes when love exists. That's why the day of rest. Because you're safe in the arm of Jesus. You can relax in this world. You'll be calm within despite what's happening outside. So anyway. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> and, and I can tell about Sabbath in our in our, in, in, in our um, patient satisfaction. Okay. What, what happened with the Disney board? Better finish the story. The Disney board, we were selected 10 years ago, uh, 14 years ago now, to, uh, to run the hospital, actually 16 years ago. And we built it with uh, eight-sided talent for the eight principles of creation. We built, it, we built it with two corridors in it, one for the touch, one for health, the front corridor, the street of health, the back is the avenue of healing. This hospital is now the most successful, was named by the Wall Street Journal as the hospital of the future. Financially, it's one among the top 3% of successful hospitals in the United States. I don't apologize for that because God's way should be to bring the greatest value. And if it does, it will bring you the greatest, the greatest resources. So I, when, I'm not get, when I'm in trouble financially, I usually ask, number one, did I ever get God's idea straight? Number two, have I done the disciplined work to put it into practice? Or am I just pontificating about it and say, you should be doing this, and you should be doing that, and you should be doing the other. And if I did that, then did I express it and communicate it to the people through the proper marketing? So I believe God's way has a tremendous value, and I believe it should produce solid institutions that should grow with financial blessings. Well, he, you know, the, repeat the question. Yeah, repeat sure. it, yeah. The question is uh, to, when explaining to the board member, or the, the, the Jewish board member, about the creation model of why we, of where our health ministry came from, where our health ideas are really anchored, the question was, how did he ever accept the ministry of Christ? You know, his, they respected right off the bat, and most people do, and many Jews accept Jesus as the model for compassion. I had a Jewish gentleman I sat with. He gave us $20 million uh, for our one of our buildings on campus. He's Jewish. I sat with his rabbi because his friend said you shouldn't be giving this to a Christian institution, an Adventist institution. I went through everything with his rabbi of what exactly we were about, how we were going to share the healing ministry of Christ, how that's what was going to be. The rabbi said, you know, I'd love to see your picture, of Nathan Green picture with Christ in surgery. He said, there's nobody that I think is a better example of the compassion of how we should be than Jesus Christ. They don't have a problem with Jesus Christ as a model of compassion. As a Savior, yes. As a Messiah, yes, they have a problem. But basically, I don't try to compromise those. One more item that I just mentioned to you is the Sabbath practice that we use. All of our, all of our service management principles for managing the service in the hospital are built around Sabbath. We took the three words of trust, of, of rest, and we took blessing and sanctification, those three words that are embedded in those three, uh, in those three phrases from, from the seventh day of creation. Those th we translated them over into words that could be easily understood in the hospital. So trust, belonging, and hope. We took the principles of Sabbath and said, if we use our, all of our relationship with people based on the principles of Sabbath, the day of Sabbath was a day for relationship, we should be able to provide the greatest opportunity to serve them and show them God's way. And the satisfaction that they should feel in their heart should be directly related to that. So we've been really focusing on that because frankly our satisfaction hasn't been where we wanted it to be. But we decided to build our satisfaction model after the creation story. And so I say to you, as you think of how you're going to work, start with a philosophy of what God's call, of your philosophy of health ministry, and then embed that in everything you do, not just, soup, don't put it in just slogans on the wall or statements here, embed that through everything, and you'll find the hardest work is getting it down into clinical practice. 
very, very challenging. Any other questions that you, or comments? Thank you, uh, Des. <coughs> it's, your explanation is always such an encouragement to me. I've appreciated a lifestyle medicine focus as well. Uh, I will tell you that getting this to work in everybody's mind at the same time is a bit of a challenge. And uh, that's something we're working on. We are able now, the Coronary Health Improvement Project, the CHIP program is being run in Florida Hospital. As I know, it, it's uh, done at Loma Linda as well. And I'm doing this Wellspring Diabetes Program it's still in its nidus. Uh, it, it, it needs no praise at present. We're looking for ways to make it grow and go. As was pointed out so well this morning by Dr. Howe, it's uh, very hard to sell, tell someone to quit smoking if you're smoking yourself. Uh, and so as I'm teaching these young residents about lifestyle, I've got two kind of big hurdles. I can teach them the science. That's fairly easy. The second part is to get them to change their own lifestyle. It has to be their choice. can't be forced down on them. They have to say, yes, I want to do that and see the benefit. From it. And it's neat to see that happen. The, the uh, unfortunate thing is, from my standpoint, but it's a blessing, they finish, they graduate, and they go, right? <laughs> so I, I lose the victories. Uh, they're, they're off doing their uh, practices, but it's encouraging to see those types of things uh, happen. Well, what have you seen happen in your hospital? Do you have any questions? Uh, you, you sense at least one administrator here, and I call uh, Des the senior vice president for dreams, okay? That's, that's what I call him. <clears throat> I appreciate that, that vision that he puts out, and uh, it really does permeate the, uh, the organization. Any uh, concepts or experiences that you have had? I've been doing a lot of ex uh, study and also <clears throat> gaining experience in the implications of periodontal disease mm -hmm. relating to heart disease mm -hmm. and diabetes. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if uh, that is ever a component in, in a hospital setting in tackling uh, diabetes. Well, that's a uh, very interesting question. We, of course, all know that periodontal disease is, can increase the risk of heart disease. And so what I generally do, as I tell the residents, is you see the evidence of the periodontal disease, you need to have them talk to their dentist, right? It's not usually an inpatient kind of process, but it's certainly something that we understand. And I think that would be true of most all the cardiologists. So, yeah. Yes, we would we, we'd like to deal with that part of things. Yes. Ed. Just a comment from an immunologist. Uh, anything that increases inflammation starts the heart disease process because it damages the endothelium. Mm -hmm. And it gets to be an immune system problem initially, and then it goes on into the plaque, which mm -hmm. happens many, many mm -hmm. years later, and calcification mm -hmm. and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I've come to realize is that red meat especially is a pro-inflammatory product. Mm -hmm. And that probably starts the process, and we don't know all the physiology yet, but it's certainly part of what happens. Mm -hmm. Our rheumatoid arthritis patients get a lot better when they avoid red meat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's so much that we can do, uh, as, as, especially as the science is coming up and kind of demonstrating this for us. I'm anxious to hear a little bit more when you talk about not being able to just tell patients. We have to engage them in ways that empower them. You talked about hope, but what is the dynamic that you're using there? What about this group process? How is it working to actually get people to be accountable to each other, perhaps? Now, Harry, I guess I'm assuming you're talking about how do we work with individuals to get them to change, and I share that I've been using a little bit of the group process to kind of help with that. Uh, that is, uh, uh, I'm still learning that process. What I see happening is that we have a group of people uh, coming together uh, to interact over a disease process. And there, many times they'll come, they're, they're not ready to make a full change. And the thought, for example, of a 100% plant-based diet is um, uh, and a difficult one for them to grasp. 
Uh, generally, I'll present, you don't have to become uh, vegetarian. I said you do have to have a whole uh, plant, uh, eat a lot of whole plants. We come together in a group, and then others in the group begin to tell what happened to them when they made their choices. Or they'll begin to share recipes, or uh, in essence, they're helping kind of each other. And that uh, uh, process is very good at getting people to kind of make choices. And those that say, as Dr. Howe pointed out this morning, uh, or was that you that said, the patient said, I'm, I'll never quit eating meat? <laughs> Somebody said that. Oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. And, and they'll, they'll come back and, and they'll have actually done it. Well, I tried it, you know. And yes, I feel better and I'm going to continue this. So that group process is really powerful in bringing about change. Now, having this group process attached to the back end of an acute care facility, because that's where the crises are. So you can gather those with crises and then funnel them into that type of, at least that's my dream, into that type of an experience that can then be ongoing. And that's what we're trying to build with the CHIP program, for example. Although there's uh, organizational inertia the top is, uh, wheels are spinning fast, but a little further down the channels, the wheels are spinning a little slower. And of course, you have to bring people along. You can't force it down their throats. They need to understand it and embrace it. I, I saw another hand. Yes. I'm Brent in Illinois Fighting Pell. The spiritual leadership in the hospital uh, requires a lot more administrative overhead the bigger the institution gets. Uh, you know, gets in, requires a lot more work. You mm -hmm. know, the larger the institution mm -hmm. is, and and that is you know one of the things that seems to argue well it's better to keep them small. But then, there it's a, she didn't say it's impossible if they're bigger. Uh -huh. But uh, do you have any ideas on how we can make that happen successfully in larger institutions? Uh, you know, I, I think that's an excellent point and one that I wrestled with as a uh, employee, if you will, or one of the, part of the leadership of the. Uh, Lifestyle Center of America. I, I really, I, I think the answer lies in what Des presented, this concept of really reaching out. I mean, you've got to get it throughout the organization. You've got to figure out how to apply the principles all the way down the organization. But once you get it and you market it, the world is going to be at your doorstep. I don't think money is going to be a problem. I, I really agree with you on that. Would you like to add something? Well, the only thing I'd say is that basically one of the things we've learned a lot is that we're really, um, in medicine, we've been used to doing things to people. And that works in an acute situation. You can take something out, you can put something in, you can prescribe something and you fix, you fix some system or you're on their way. In a chronic situation, it really means that they have to be actually doing 80 to 90% of mm -hmm. the care themselves. So you're more of a consultant so it takes a huge difference in culture. And the fact of the matter is, as that huge difference switches, in the hospital you have a command and control culture. In the future, on the, on the healing side, on the health side, you have to have an empowerment culture that says, how do we empower you to do this? How that relates then to the spiritual is, on, this, on the healing side, the spiritual is a prayer, often a prayer for God to intervene or for God to heal or something like this, for God to, to be with you at that moment to reverse the circumstances. On the health side, it's often God to walk with you. The difference is tremendous in the sense that in a, in a spiritual investment, so to speak, like Florida Hospital, our, our investment in our, in our organization as we get larger, means we've had to go to spiritual ambassadors where we now have 1,800 spiritual ambassadors, but those are people who are volunteers. They're not appointed to the organization. They're at the grassroots, and they keep the spirit of that organization. You have to find ways to keep them energized and the ways to keep them involved. And as you go through that process, to me, the key then becomes one question. We have often the belief that's often said, no mar margin, no mission. Uh, have you heard that one? No margin, no mission. If you don't make money, you can't do mission. Really, that's, that is going to lead you to a token organization, an organization that makes money over here and does the mission with a portion of that money on this side. 
I think we have to say either our mission produces distinctive and and uh, long-term value, stable value and sustainability, or our mission will not survive. If it's bus if if it's just business principles that makes our that makes Adventist Health System work, over time the mission will have to incrementally drop down. If at its core it's the teachings of creation health and the teachings of Christ that make it make it valuable and make it the magnet for healing and the magnet for health, then in fact the, the, the whole idea is reversed. Instead of no margin, no mission, it's no mission, no margin. In other words, you can't, our most mission-driven and, and organized hospitals, our built hospitals, should be our most financially stable and powerful hospitals. If they're in a market where there is financial stability, now we're going to have to put hospitals and services in places where people are poor and they cannot afford them, and we're, we should expect that we will uh, provide those services without the same sort of expect, uh, expect, expected expectation on returns. However, you should be able to get other people to help you pay for those facilities too. So I think the key thing is integrating spirituality throughout the whole spectrum. So if I were looking to you as a doctor, I would say, do you have a prescription pad that's holistic or is it just body? Yes. Anything on the prescription pad? Do you actually say I want to prescribe you something for your mind if you'd like it? Would you have you thought about? You know, I I think your spirit is really important because that's where you get your motivation. And what I'm telling you, you need to do. You have to be highly motivated to do a lot of changes to do. You need some support in the spiritual. One of the problems that I've found we're very good at grouping patients by disease, but they live by family circles. And if you're going to change them, you've got to change the family and the support system around them. Vital Friends, a great book by Tom Rath, says if you eat healthy, I mean, if your best friend eats healthy, you're five more times to likely to eat healthy. If your best friend exercises, you're 100% more likely to exercise. The point is, we've got to move from grouping people in, in, in disease groups teaching them here and then sending them back to the, to the situation that has created and supported their whole disease in the process. We've got to help them, we've got to create a movement. That's what the Adventists were, we're a movement. And the movement is social, is, is around a social dynamic. And to me, that's what, what Adventists have to offer. Without spiritual teaching, you cannot create the social dynamic and the, and the motivation for change. Motivation for change will not come by fear or medical facts. If it were, if, it was, if that was the source, everybody be healthy, everybody would yeah. be fine, because we have enough medical information out there, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's not an information problem. It's a motivation problem. So to me, the key issue, answer to you, is that spirituality has to be at the core. If it's on the peripheral, it will be cut every time. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, our time is up. I, it, it, the time is up, and I think we need to let people go. I, I appreciate uh, the uh, involvement and everybody's interaction. Uh, I personally am thankful for Seventh-day Adventist medical institutions. They give me a place where it's safe to pray for my patients. It's safe to reach out and learn. It's not something you learn in medical school, right? Oh, you, you said I have five more minutes? Does it? Well, uh, Ed Neblett just gave me the that's it sign. Okay, we got five more minutes. Okay, okay. Tim, share, share with us or comment. I agree so much with what you're saying, Des. Remember, your practice can be that social change center. Mm -hmm. And when your patients fail, remember those, those cases I presented uh -huh. this morning. Uh -huh. Three of those four have been my patients for 20 years. Uh -huh. And the most important thing you can say when they fail, because they will, because they're human just like yeah. me is, doesn't make any difference. I love you still. Uh -huh. When I say that, every day I'll tell a patient who's still smoking, it doesn't matter, I still love you. Uh -huh. You've got to do that. You just have to. Because some of them will fail to test you. Don't you fail the test. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It okay. is so vital. You become their family. And, and many times, the, uh, you know, I, I have a great benefit. As I mentioned this morning, 
my office nurse has been there for 22 years. I could leave the practice and go, fine, if she leaves, I'm dead in the water. <laughs> it's family that makes a difference. Yeah. It's the social thing. Build it. It's essential. Yeah. Good, good. Thank you. Oh, you had one. Uh, Actually, I have a couple questions. Okay. Um, I agree with that concept about being the consultant. Uh-huh. How does that, um, how do you incorporate that with the general movement of medical care to move to um, medical homes? You're talking more about how the patient has to, has to feel like they're where they come and see a doctor feels more like a medical home. Mm-hmm. The tendency that I've seen with the parents of the patients that I see is a home then kind of contradicts the whole idea of simply being a consultant. Do you see how, how do you, I, and then I have a second question okay. that I think is somewhat related okay. to what you were saying earlier. Okay. Uh, as I look at it, uh, the, if I have an appendix that needs to be cut out, uh, I need to lay down the table and let the doctor work. But if I have diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, the doctor is fooling himself if he thinks he's going to manage that disease by giving me a pill. It's really a lifestyle disease. And so in order for me to change my behavior, I need somebody, as, as Dr. Howe is pointing out here, not just to tell me what to do, but to create an environment, a home, if you will, where I am encouraged and nurtured in that change. I, I, doctors are dictators. That's the culture, right? I mean, we dictate, we dictate. I mean, there's, there's dictation that happens. Uh, but what we need to do is to become coaches. We need to recognize when people are ready to change. The advanced is to get to the point where we can bring people to the point of a crisis so they're willing to change. And then, of course, tell them the right thing to do. To tell them, cut back on your red meat, exercise a little bit, doesn't work really well. And if you tell people the wrong thing to do, uh, for example, Mediterranean diet, the science really isn't there. They'll often say it. Uh, as I heard one uh, researcher say to another, you don't solve problems by doing the wrong thing better. We really need to give the right answer, the correct answer. And that really, Adventists ha- have the advantage on that. Okay. I hope that was good enough. Second question was, Uh um, I think it was pointed out in this session that the crisis is a great point at which uh, we can introduce change. Yes. And I'm a pediatrician, so we, a lot of the change or a lot of the things we see are parents that are young enough that they haven't seen the things that have come along, yet yet they treat their child poorly enough that the change kind of needs to happen. How do you do that when crisis hasn't hit yet, but you're still trying to introduce these, the parents, because the parents need to do the changes or else you've got a a certain lifestyle for the child and the parents are completely doing something else that they should not do and not exercising and do all that. You're right. If If you're dealing with childhood obesity, you can't just deal with the kid. You have to change the whole family milieu, which is exactly correct. And it's an extremely difficult thing to do. One of the things we're doing right now that we're working on, it, and we'd be love to find doctors who are interested in doing this. So we're looking for doctors who are on, will be on a network node with us to be able to do this. Dr. Kim is very much involved. We really feel like we need to have a creation health birthing class for families because there are moments in Scripture you look at when when they have a son, when they have a child, that these are great change moments. And there's a great openness. Yeah. And these these moments need to be captured both before they have the child in a family unit and start to penetrate that. And I believe that the place to deliver that's often in a church because a church can be a sustaining body, whereas your office can be a stimulating location but not a sustaining body. And it involves group process as right. well. And I want to tell you how, how deep our problem is. This is why most of American medicine will not make it. Just go back and look at the history. American medicine and hospitals went one direction at a certain point in history, and hotels went another direction. The direction hospitals went was with prisons. The language we use is the language of incarceration. You go to any website that you have prisons, we call people when, they're, when they are coming to the prison admissions, they call them admissions. We call them inpatients, inpatients they call them inmates. We take their clothes away and give them new clothes. They take their clothes away and give them new clothes. (laughs) 
social worker for them, we have a social worker for them. They have a, a case manager for them, we have a case manager for them. When they leave, they call it a discharge, we call it a discharge. When they don't do what we said, they call we call it non-compliant, they call it non-compliant. <laughs> you cannot cause people to romance into health, and that's our biggest journey, romancing people into health, and, and speak to their health personality with incarceration language. It is absolutely diametrically opposed to the direction we go. So how do you get people to, to have fun in health? And Disney challenged us with one idea. They said medical people don't know how to have fun, and therefore they will not be able to show how to live a happy life with health. They know how to stop danger, but they don't know how to have fun. So we're talking about deeply embedded things that you've been trained in for years that you're gonna, you have to choose at some point to, to change. And it's not only change for the patient, it's a change for the caregiver. Thank you. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Let's uh, close with a word of prayer, if that's okay. Our Father in heaven, we have been challenged with the opportunity and the vision and we need your spirit to guide us. As we go back to our practices, help us to incorporate what we need to into our practices. Teach us how to reach out to the administrators in our hospitals and work together as a team to extend your healing ministry. We thank you in Jesus' name. Thank you. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen. Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.